I'm Serenity Miller. I'm the pastor of local outreach and first impressions here at Grace Point. When I think back about 10 years ago, I was at literally the lowest place of my life. I, it hurt to be alive. I, uh, I didn't want to wake up in the morning. It was everything I could do to get out of bed and to get through a day. And God met me in the middle of that. Uh, I was an active alcoholic self-harming, um, you know, blackout drinking, blackout driving more nights than I wasn't. And I remember one night, I was listening to somebody else share their story about how God had changed them. And I remember just in the middle of listening to that story, in my head praying, okay God, this is day one and something changed. There was no flash of lightning, no roar of thunder. It was just, I think I went to bed that night. After that, I just went home and went to bed. But when I think back to that prayer, I can't remember a time of ever struggling with alcohol again after that. And that that was the miracle. That was, you know, I thought alcohol was my problem. I still struggled with a lot of other things after that. But God used that miracle to show himself to me, to show me who he was and to show me who I was. He took away that temptation. He changed me in that moment. I believe that. And when I look back at that time, I see that every time I gave him an inch, he took me the next mile. <laughs> and, you know, I had absolutely nothing left to give him with that prayer other than the emptiness that I needed him to fill at that time. And, you know, I, I think back to that moment of just, like, that's, that's the miracle moment. That's when he took that temptation away from me. And there have been a lot of other miracles that he's done in my life since then, but that was the one that he used for me to squarely face who he was and who I was. And after that, you know, it, I feel like we say never and God says, watch this. Because there was a time in my life when I would have said I would never step foot in a church again, much less call myself a Christian, much less be a pastor of a church. God is a miracle worker. He, he does things that we would never in a million years imagine, and it's all about revealing who He is and what He can do through those things. Amen. Um, Pastor Serenity started our message out this morning, I think, by getting us focused on the content, and that is that our God is a miracle-working God. And one of the privileges I have as a pastor seeing story after story like hers unfold in our midst. And it's just amazing to see the works that God does in a person's life. And sometimes we don't think that's miraculous. Yeah, it is, isn't it? The changes that he does in a life are just plain miraculous. Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Point today. I'm glad you're all here. Um, in our message this morning, we're going to focus on this idea that Jesus just interacts with his creation in a miraculous way. This is really our second message in this series from the Gospel of John 
on miracles. We covered one in the third week. And in that particular case, we focused more on the ingredients of the making of a miracle. And I don't know if you remember it at all. I don't remember what I've talked to people about yesterday, much less like five, six weeks ago. But in that particular message, we talked on this idea that there are some things that lend themselves that help create fertility for a miracle to transpire. And so we see this very thing happen in the changing of water to wine. Uh, Jesus' mom, Mary, comes to him and says, they're out of wine. (laughs) And that meant, son, I I want you to change this water to wine. And she knew her son, Jesus, and she expected him to be able to do the miraculous. That's like ingredient number one, is that we just expect Christ to do the miraculous. Ingredient number two was she saw the need. They're running out of wine, and she had compassion. We got to do something about this. That's the second component, basically, need and compassion uh, of, of creating this favorable environment for the miraculous. And then she told the servants, whatever he says to do, and I would add added this in there, no matter how ridiculous it may seem, just do it. And obedience is a key pathway of the follower for experiencing the miraculous. And then we see that final step that was so incredibly important there in that encounter uh, with Christ and the miraculous changing of wine, uh, water to wine, was they took action. They just obediently followed. They did something. Listen, oftentimes we don't experience the miracles of God in our life because of our passivity and inactivity. And if we will just take a risk, if we'll go out there and extend ourselves and put ourselves in what I like to call the way of a miracle, it will happen. This message this morning is not on the ingredients of a miracle. It's on this idea that when it comes to Jesus, the miraculous is just part of the package. Everywhere he went, every interaction he had basically was one of miraculous nature, and it still continues on to today. I've worked at several places over my life uh, before I became a pastor. And at every one of those places I worked, whether it be a factory or an engineering office or whatever, we always had what were called standard operating procedures. And what these were were these written-up ways of doing something so that you would get a known outcome. It cost you to have a, repet, uh, you know, a repetitive nature to what you were doing to provide desire, desired outcome. Now, I tell you what, we all do this more than we realize, we, we find something that works, we redo it, and we redo it because we get the desired results. I like to bake bread. Now, I didn't get any reaction first hour to that. So I thought, people just think it's normal for a man to bake bread, I guess, anymore. Eh? Amen in our culture? Now, the reason I bake bread is because I like to eat it. Can you say amen to that? Yeah. Amen, amen yeah. So I, I make whole wheat bread. So I grind my own wheat and everything. And I, amen. <laughs> Thanks, you. <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> so... I got this recipe, I've got this SOP, I've got it memorized. I know what you do. You get five cups of water, you put in two cups of oatmeal, you throw in two tablespoons of sea salt, and you let that mixture just start to cook until it gets really nice and gooey. While that's cooking, I take my wheat, I go outside to the backyard, I pull out our little mill, and I grind about 10 cups. At that point, then, everything's ready to start going together. So I get out our little Bosch mixture. You notice all the mechanisms I'm using here? because I'm a man. (laughs) Nothing's by hand. 
If it doesn't have a machine, I'm not going to do it. So I'm just being honest with you. So you get the little Bosch mixer out. This thing's an incredible German technology. It works really well for kneading bread. And so you put the goo in there. You put, start putting the flour in there. And you add one-third cup sorghum, one-third cup molasses, one-third cup honey. And then once that mixes up a little bit, you throw in your vital gluten. And some of you are going, oh, no. You're throwing death into there. Yeah. If you have a gluten allergy, don't, don't eat this bread. It'll kill you. And then I throw in dough enhancer. I have no idea what that stuff is. It's like magic powder. Makes it rise really well. And then you throw yeast. And if you do it right, guess what you get every time? A nice loaf of bread. Well, five of them. Now, sometimes I cut corners. I get lazy. Are you like that? Sometimes I don't pay attention to the recipes, especially when I started baking bread. And I'd get a loaf of bread that looked an awful lot like this. <laughs> it's called a brick. It was really dense, and it weighed about the same as the brick. And I would eat it because I'm a very determined Norwegian. And I'm not going to waste anything. I'm not going to waste any food. And it was like eating bread jerky. Yeah. What it was really good for was exercising your face muscles. And so I called it lifting the chin and sucking in the cheeks. Anyway, you, 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 I don't know why I'd say those things. But that, that recipe followed would get... The desired results. And when I, when, I, when I look at Jesus, his recipe was always one of the miraculous. Whatever situation he was dealing with, there was going to be something miraculous that transpired. And it's just his standard operating procedure. It is his recipe of interaction with his creation. So we're going to read about a couple of those here in Luke chapter 6 this morning. I'm going to read verses 1 through, uh, I don't know, 20 or 22, whenever I wear out. And then we'll, we'll go to uh, talking about this scripture. But, but just listen to this now. Like, listen to it with freshness. If you've already heard this multiple times in your life, listen to it like you're listening for the first time and kind of note the theme here of how Jesus interacts miraculously with those around him. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will that go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over from, by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three to four miles... They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. 
Then they were willing to take him into the boat. Immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. I'm going to stop reading there uh, for this morning. You can read the rest if you would like to, of course. Here's what I want to do with you today. First of all, I just really want to impress upon you that Jesus is indeed a miracle worker. We sang about that. That was a great song. I love that song. Great song. And that was Serenity's testimony that Jesus, his standard operation is that of a miracle worker. Secondly, though, what I want to focus in on with you and zoom a little bit in on with you this morning is that behind the miracles is a truth. Behind the miracles is either an expression that Jesus is the Son of God or this idea that he's revealing something about his nature to us that we ought to take notice of. So our big thought for this morning is this. It was Jesus' standard operating procedure to perform miracles. I mean, think about our adventure thus far in the Gospel of John. Right away in the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus is a miraculous kind of individual. He sees Nathanael under the fig tree before his brother Philip goes to him and tells him about Jesus. Jesus saw Nathanael. So right away we see, oh, this guy is no ordinary person. At his mother's request, he turns water to wine and thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. John 2 ends by saying he did many miraculous signs at Passover and many believed in his name. Jesus sat down by the well with a Samaritan woman. He supernaturally knew her history. She knew, he knew she had been married to five different men and the sixth one that he was living with was presently not her husband. At the end of chapter 4, Jesus goes back to Cana where he had turned water to wine and this time he heals a royal official's son. Then you move on to the invalid who had laid by the pool for 38 years, unable to get to the pool when it was thought that an angel would stir the water and the first one into the water was healed. And he asked him, do you want to be well? And he heals this paralytic that had been sitting there for 38 years in that condition. And then we get to our reading this morning. And what does he do? He feeds 5,000 and he walks on water. Are you seeing a pattern here? And if you continue reading about him, you know, he heals the blind, he, he unstops the death's ears, he raises his dead friend Lazarus from the grave, he miraculously predicts his own death, and interesting enough, when he's being arrested, even in that moment of great tragedy, we see his miracle interaction with those around him. The, the, the mob comes to arrest him. Right? And they're carrying their clubs and their spears and their swords and whatever. And they, they say, are you Jesus? And he says what? I am. What did they do? They had a moment of involuntary worship. Boom, down on the ground they all fall. Now think about this. If you're in that mob and you're going to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ and he says, I am, and you go, bam, on your face, wouldn't that give you cause to pause? And wondered, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. But they were bent on their disbelief. And in the midst of his uh, uh, being arrested, impulsive Peter lops off the ear of the high priest, and Jesus just heals him. And I'm going, you bunch of dingbats. Look what's going on around you. You're falling down and worshiping this man. He's healing the high priest's ear, and yet you're bent on arresting him and not believing in him. It was just Jesus' standard operating procedure to interact miraculously 
with his creation. Why miracles? I think there's some reasons for miracles. First of all, miracles provide evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. Miracles provide evidence that Jesus was whom he claimed to be. They reveal truths about Jesus that maybe otherwise we wouldn't take notice of. And of course, they minister to what? Needs of people. So the miracle like water to wine, we're told, uh, revealed the glory of Jesus. For what end and what purpose? So that the disciples put their faith in him. So oftentimes, uh, the purpose behind the miracle was to bring glory to Christ so that what? People would believe in him. Jesus supernaturally sees Nathanael under that fig tree. And he tells Nathanael, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathanael says, you truly are the son of God. Jesus said, you think this is great, you wait. Amen? Remember that? That's how the book basically starts. And we see that part of the purpose, part of the why behind a miracle is so that Christ is proclaimed and acknowledged as the son of God. By the way, every time I read this water to wine miracle. It reminds me that God wants to show his glory to us. God wants to be glorified among his people. This year when we went out for a, 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 a retreat, the staff did, we were sharing around a, a circle at the end about what we think God wants to do in us and maybe in the life of the church this year. And I really felt impressed that God wants to demonstrate his glory among us. And he wants us to see his glory. And he wants us to be enamored with his glory. And he wants us to worship him, the glorified one. Not only that, he wants us to have a hunger for him. He wants our soul to long after him and to be satisfied only with him. So he wants us to see his glory and have this divine hunger. And he wants us to love other people like he loves other people. He wants us to be consumed for the sake of others. And I, I just, every time I read this account, he turned water to wine and revealed his glory. I say, I say a little prayer. Jesus, show me your glory. Let me see who you are. I can't take too much of it. Like Moses, you probably need to cover me up a bit because I don't think I could stand in the presence of your glory. But show me some of your glory. Just make it known to me. So one of the big reasons why uh, uh, miracles is so that we would acknowledge Christ as God's son. But here's another, uh, I think, why behind the miracles. is so that we realize and learn some truths about Jesus, that we have some takeaways. And I want to talk about that quickly uh, uh, pertaining to these two miracles that we read about this morning. So first of all, let's look at the miraculous feeding. I think this was uh, uh, so that we trust Jesus. So my takeaway for this is, is trust Jesus and meet your needs. Disciples had this focus on bread and meals. They kind of had a, a strange focus uh, and concern about what they were going to eat next. So when Jesus is sitting down at the well with a Samaritan woman, the disciples were off buying supplies, food. They were on a shopping trip, basically. And they come back, and they're puzzled by why he would be talking to a Samaritan woman. And I think they thought he had low blood sugar or something going on at the moment or whatever. But they said, you need to eat something, man. 
I think they're just confused. You're talking to this woman, here's some food, that'll make you feel better. And he says, my food is to do the work of my father. And they said, who brought him lunch? They, they never quite got it. They never quite figured it out. And basically, the feeding of the 5,000 was this big demonstration of the sufficiency of God to provide. They were supposed to get this figured out. Don't worry about bread. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. But they seem to be slow uh, of learning this lesson. In Mark chapter 8, after Jesus feeds the 4,000 there, and they have seven basketfuls left over, they get into a boat to cross to the other side of the sea. And he says to his disciples, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they begin to discuss among themselves. What does that mean? They said, it's because we forgot bread. And I'm reading that and thinking, really, guys? That's the best you can do here? You forgot bread? And Jesus, asking them what they were talking about, basically said, really, you have eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear. And then he recounts the feeding of the 5,000 and the 12 basketfuls left over. And he recounts them the feeding of the 4,000 and the seven baskets left over. And he, he concludes by saying, do you still not understand? And what he's saying here is, I will supply your needs. Why are you worried about bread? I will supply those needs. Haven't you seen these miracles? Why are you worrying about these kinds of things? As God takes care of the lily here today and gone tomorrow, as God takes care of the sparrow, he will take care of you. Quit expending so much of your energy on things that you ought not to be worried about. So the feeding of the 5,000 is to get us to believe that Jesus will take care of us. So here's a reflection thought I have for you, a question basically. What, is, what need is consuming you so that you should ask Jesus to meet it? You know, what need is consuming you that you should ask Jesus to meet? And just give it to him and quit worrying about it, but ask him to meet it and expect him to work supernaturally in your life. Why wouldn't he? That's how he works in our lives. Now, something goes along with this that's extraordinarily important for us to get. I think God does miraculous interventions frequently in our lives. Serenity Miller's testimony, that's what that is. Frequently, when we come to our, our point of being born again, God has inter- interacted and intervened in our life in a supernatural way. But get this, God graces you and me, fills us with his power, fills us with his Holy Spirit so that you and I can administer that grace to others so that we can become a divine answer to other people's prayers. So a companion, a sister question here for you to consider this morning to that which I just asked is this. What need of others is God calling you to minister to? That's just as important as saying, what I have these needs, God, minister to these needs. But you have to begin to say, God, I know that you are working in my life in such a way that I might be the divine solution to somebody else's need. Open my eyes to see that also. You can't be all things to all people, but you can be someone to a certain person. At district retreat in February here, I loved how they rolled out for us a discipleship uh, plan they actually got this thing that you can get an app that goes on your phone, right? We all have these phones. That, and you can use that app as, a, as a, and a, a, it provides a structure of how to disciple somebody else. It's great. We're going to push into this thing and, and try to figure out how to do it. But what I, I became aware of is this, is that God really, really, really wants us to begin to care 
about other people's souls and their spiritual well-being, and he wants us to continually ask this question, how, God, can I be used in a divine way to minister your grace to another human being? And part of that is by being willing to disciple somebody around us, somebody that needs to grow in Christ, and maybe God is calling you to be that person that takes them to that next level. We just have to become courageous and bold and willing uh, to do it. And we begin as a staff here to discuss what is the disciple? And what does a disciple look like? And I think we're on to a pretty good definition. I'm going to give that to you this morning. You know what a disciple is? It's someone that's conforming to Jesus Christ for his glory and for the sake of others. We think discipleship oftentimes is sitting down and doing a Bible study. Uh Uh-uh. That's part of it. But discipleship at its root means I'm looking a lot like Jesus Christ for the glory of Jesus Christ, and for the sake of other human beings. That's a good definition of discipleship. That's what we want to push in here. So I want to ask you, who is God calling perhaps you to do this with? We're going to talk about this some more and push into it more in the next few weeks, but I just wanted to kind of throw that out there so it can begin to rattle around in your gray matter a little bit and you can think about it. But I think the more you grow in Christ and the more Christ does things in you, the more you begin to interact with others. I was... um, in Lincoln, Nebraska this last uh, couple days. By the way, it was 64 down there yesterday and sunny. No snow. Why do we live here, amen? Anyway, uh, <laughs> so Bruce and I are driving in this car um, late Friday night. That's my son-in-law. And we're picking up Acacia from uh, uh, a pajama party or something that she had at church. I don't know. Anyway, we're picking her up. Um, and we were talking and the conversation got really serious. Bruce likes to do that. Uh, He's a thinker. And um, we were talking about uh, Liz a little bit for some reason. That's Bruce's wife. That's my oldest daughter. And he said to me, after she went through that uh, struggle with cancer, um, she had uh, thyroid cancer. At the same time, my mom was dying of brain cancer. My dad had cancer. My brother had cancer. It was a tough time. He said, after she went through that cancer, she was never the same. And he said, it wasn't like there was a problem before, but she just got even more serious-minded about following God. He said, sometimes he, and this is Bruce talking. He's a husband that loves his wife dearly, which I'm grateful that I have a son-in-law like this. He said, I wish I could do as good as her, and he does. He's a serious-minded Christ follower. But he said, she just got serious, more serious-minded. She just invests in this, she has a, a class she teaches at church. She says she just invests in it year after year after year into these, uh, these students that she teaches. And she's just very serious about what, what we do. She does the missions coordination for their church. Um, she has a, a degree that lends itself towards that. And, but she just does it for, as a ministry. She doesn't get paid, and so she does all their, their missions coordination for their church and stuff like that. And he, and he goes, I, I, I should do more. I said, wait, wait, wait. That's not where we should go with this. But I see what, he's, what he was saying about that. When you have some serious thing happen in your life, you get more reflective, and you're more willing to pour into others because that's God's heart. Amen? That's just God's heart. And I want to encourage you to think that way. You might be the divine answer to somebody's prayer. He may use you. So let's move on to the next miracle, and then we're going to finish up. The miraculous walking on water. And what I see from this miracle is Jesus is present. Don't be afraid. 
Jesus is present. Don't be afraid. Disciples got into a boat. They set across the sea. They're, they're, they're oaring <laughs> three to four miles. Have you ever done that? That's a long way. Uh, years ago at, at the lake, for some unknown reason, Bruce, my son-in-law, was involved with this too, and my son Nathaniel and I thought it would be a good idea to kayak across our lake, portage across the road to another lake, and kayak the length of that lake, and then come back. That's stupid. <laughs> but for some reason, we thought that would be fun, right? So we get in these kayaks, and of course, it's windy, and, you're, and I'm thinking about halfway, this was a dumb idea really sore, but I can't admit it because I'm a man. And these guys are all 30 years younger than me, and I thought, I'm not going to let them outdo me, which is another stupid thing to do. So we kayak back. It took about four and a half hours that time. Vicki asked, where did you go? I remember saying that. I said, this was stupid. <laughs> but I rolled out of the shore. Armpits were just killing me. You ever have that where you really... Right here, right? I could hardly go, oh, I laid there for a little while. I said, dum, 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 dum. And the next day I got up, I said, oh, my goodness. I had these chest muscles. I didn't know they existed, but they were really sore. So I read this account. I read this account, right? These guys are in this big old clumsy boat. And they're what? Three to four miles. I'm going, I feel sorry for you guys. I'm sorry. That's hard. And then Jesus comes walking on the water, and they're really terrified. It was really a ah, moment. What is this? And Jesus says, it is I. Hear this. Don't be afraid. That, my friend, is a now word of God to us today. It is I. Don't be afraid. Whatever you're going through, whatever trial you're facing, whatever healing you need, whether it be body, soul, or spirit, or whatever's going on in your life, I hear God saying, it is I, don't be afraid. Amen? Don't be afraid. A few years back, um, Matt Douglas and I went to visit Mary Jean Munsterman. She had been battling cancer for several years at that point. Mary Jean, uh, the Munsterman family and our family go back quite a few years. Uh, her oldest daughter, Jennifer, and Brianna, our second daughter, were really good friends in high school, so we had gotten to know them for years and years and years. And so I went over to their house to just pray with her and be with her there. And Matt Douglas was with me also on that trip. And she uh, was walking between the living room and the kitchen to get us some cookies. <laughs> we really didn't eat cookies. She was one of the nicest girls I've ever known. She was always concerned about others, and she's sitting here battling this cancer, giving me cookies, like, yeah. I said, I really don't need a cookie, but she insisted. So we're walking into the kitchen, and as we're walking, she's just kind of talking with me, and she said these words. I've learned what it means to be dependent on Jesus. And she looked at me and said, I'm at peace. I'm stronger because of this trial. And I sat there and I kind of cried a little bit. And, and I thought, wow, okay. And it wasn't too long after that, she passed away. And I, I'm going back to a question here, that, or not a question, but a reflection that we, we, I share with you in the third uh, message. Because I, really I really do believe Jesus does the super, supernatural. 
But, but I, I want to put this in perspective. God will either deliver you from a trial, and I think he does that frequently. Frequently, supernaturally delivers us from something. Or he supernaturally sustains you through the trial. Either way, Jesus is present. Either way, it's miraculous. Okay? And I think this has been a big struggle with the church sometimes. We get into this not understanding what God is up to and trying to put our take on something. And we just need to understand no matter what's going on, Jesus says, I'm here. Don't be afraid. 